0: When when Rhonda told me that this Sunday was Bluegrass Sunday, I had to figure out what I was going to preach. When When I learned that they were singing, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, an iconic Carter melody that has been sung a gazillion times by a gazillion singers, about death and grief, I figured it out. When I was a kid, my father used to take my brother uh, and me up to Newland, North Carolina, which is uh, up in near grandfather and all that area in North Carolina. He, had, he was an insurance agent and he had a, he was an insurance company representative and he had an agent in Newland named, uh, named Bob who owned the bank and the insurance company. And, and we'd go up, and he'd let us stay in his estate. Well, the estate was this falling-down, uh, d- dilapidated building on a hill that overlooked uh, Trout Stream, and it the, it was wallpapered with Playboy pinups. <laughs> now this was in the '60s, and they were far less um, aggressive than they are today, and. Um, which always caused a problem uh, when they would invite ministers into the East State, like Billy Graham, who went several times, they'd always get bedspreads and cover over the walls. So um, we were invited there, and I was nine or so, and and, um, inevitably, at every event, at every time we went, if my dad and maybe who other dad had gone with their kids were willing to Ply the musicians, Shona, who was the caretaker, Shona and his family musicians with enough whiskey and money, they would come over and play bluegrass one night in a really small den. I and mean, we were on top of each other. They'd have the old bass, you know, the tub bass fiddle with the, uh, and a fiddle and mandolin guitar harmonica. Uh, and it was amazing. And they would always end with Will the Circle Be Unbroken. And that was sort of my first introduction to that song. And then in college, I, uh, I ordered uh, that album, probably the best album ever done, Will the Circle Be Unbroken album with, with uh, uh, two great bands, as well as all the great <laughs> instrumentalists, Doc Watson and others, who come together. Uh, and and that's, that's the iconic hymn they sing again. So, um, I began to imagine this circular thing, this pattern that that is greater than we are. And so I chose to preach as as our passage from this morning uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. I have to be honest, this is the first sermon I have ever preached from the book of Ecclesiastes. It is thought of as a book of wisdom, and it is one of either the most loved or most hated books in the Bible. I started working on it last week, and it occurred to me that this morning sermon could serve even as an epilogue to my four-part uh, human condition series that I just finished. Who is God, and who are we? And now today, what are we supposed to do? Here are the words from what the Bible interprets as the teacher, Koheleth. It's really more than that. Uh, the preacher, teacher doesn't touch it. Here are the words from the sage. The words of the teacher from verses 1 through 7. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the teacher. Vanity. Vanity vanities. All is vanity. Vanity here doesn't mean what you look like when you look in the mirror being vain. It means it's from the Hebrew word Hebel. It's spelled H-E-V-E-L but it's pronounced Hebel. It means your NIV may translate it meaninglessness but I don't think that's a fair translation. It, it, it's more it's hard to understand literally what it means, but it's more like a vapor, something that appears of substance, but when you reach out to grab it, it has no substance. There's nothing to stand on. It is, uh, there's nothing substantial to hold on to. It's like chasing after the wind. Kebble. Back to the text. What do people gain? That is profit. Um, What do people profit from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, then hurries, they thought it was a flat earth, remember, Uh, then hurries underneath the earth to come back up again. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits, circles, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they continue to flow. The writer has noticed that while the earth is constant, Everything goes on around and around and around it, comes and goes like the sun and the stars that revolve around the earth, they thought, like the wind that blows round and round, like the streams that run to the sea, yet never. Everything on earth and over the earth and under the earth is caught up in this circle of fate over and over and over again. This was a basic Near Eastern understanding, Sumerian understanding that is by now about 7,000 years ago, everything was faded and fatalistic and it just circled over and over again and nothing that you did really mattered. So he continues, I, the teacher, this comes after he has said, I have... I have built massive buildings. I have, I have planted and grown unbelievable gardens and fruit trees. I, I have had slaves. I have had gold and silver, more than you can count. After all of this, I come to the end and I count it as Hebel vanity of vanities. And then he says in verse 12 I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with, to seek out this wisdom. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and chasing after wind anyway. Self-appointed king of something The writer has chosen to dive into the deeper questions of meaning and purpose in life. Like everything else, the answers are vanity, chasing after the wind. He goes on from chapter two, verses 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish, yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain and their work is a vexation. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. you depressed yet? (laughs) These are either words of a depressed person for sure, or a person who has tried everything of meaning and come to nothingness. Or maybe they're words of wisdom, of human awareness of immortality, infinitude, and limitations. Whatever we toil at in this world, whatever gain only goes to those who come after us, right? Who doesn't appreciate the hand that it took to make it happen? All of it seems like vanity when you think about it. In the end, we die. What's the old bumper sticker? Life's a B-I-X-X-X and then you die. What do we get out of all this toil and work under the sun? Pain, pain, money and pain. The Bible is full of wisdom, uh, really more than two types, but two predominant types. The first are those proverbial wisdoms, you know, those Ben Franklin-esque kind of wisdoms like a penny saved is a penny earned and uh, going to bed early helps a person wake up, healthy, wealthy, and why, whatever, how it goes. There's books in the Bible with these Proverbs. There are Proverbs in every book like this. They're like, if then, Proverbs, if you do this, then something good will happen. If you don't do it, something bad will happen. Proverbs 22, 6, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Or, spare the rod, spoil the child. These if-then proverbs serve a purpose. They give us some direction, and sometimes they even work, but not always. If you go deeper into the issue of what is true wisdom, it is deeper than proverbial. That's what this morning's wisdom teacher is telling us. If you go deeper, you find that these conditions of if-then, black and white, quid pro quo existence, don't always play out. If you go deeper, you find out that Ecclesiastes swims around in that deep pool of not if-then, but maybe. Or what if? And what he ends up seeing is that the best he can figure, it's all just vanity of vanities. I remember the first time I heard a sermon on this book of Ecclesiastes, I was the ripe old age of 28, I was fairly green. Recently married, of four years. We tried to have children, had trouble getting pregnant, and when Nancy did get pregnant, she had miscarried four times. Uh, So we found our way to church, probably out of that experience. I became more conscious, having, you know, still spent so many years in the unconscious world of college. I became more conscious during that time, asking deeper questions. We found our our way to church, and the first sermon at this church taught by uh, H. Lewis Patrick, who would later become my mentor, um, my uh, preacher friend, my, uh, the man who really sort of rebuilt my faith. Uh, First sermon was from this text. He read the text and he stood over the pulpit and he said, in in only his best Richard Burton-esque voice, vanity of vanities, it's all vain under the sun. My first Sunday in that church, and I'm like, "Woo!" Now I'm a salesman, I was a salesman, try not to be so much anymore. I was an insurance salesman, and so I could I could spot a fabulist when I when I saw him, and and this was no fabulation. In fact, he's not trying to sell us anything, he's trying to talk us out of it. And in a sort of ironic way, it occurred to me if he's willing to try to talk us out of something, maybe he's telling the truth. Which is one reason this book of Ecclesiastes is so important and why it's in the Bible. I mean, he could have gotten up and said, you know, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you keep the commandments, if you do what the Bible tells you you need to do, then then your life will be full and prosperous and you will have no pain and suffering. We know that prosperity gospel. That's proverbial. But life doesn't work that way. And what's awful about that kind of theology is that if you're told that that's the way life works and then something bad happens to you, your first sense is it must have been me. I didn't measure up. I wasn't faithful enough. I wasn't good enough. And so God is punishing me. Suffering happens to the best and the goodest and good things and prosperity happens to the worst and the meanest. And there is no rhyme or reason under the sun that we can understand why. That's the wisdom found in Ecclesiastes. No deals. Good people suffer. Good people suffer sometimes more than bad people. Ukraine has has a country full of suffering people while Putin and the oligarchs feast on caviar on 100-plus-foot yachts. Becoming aware of this is wisdom, but we have to grow into it. Nobody wants to hear it. The writer of Ecclesiastes is setting the parameters of what it means to live in this world under the sun which is when it comes to God and God's ways we can't understand it. It is God is ineffable, God is mysterious, God is beyond our understanding. God is God and we are not. We have some revelation from God, the text and the and the people of Israel and the and the person and body of Christ. Those are revelations. We have some revelation from nature we have some revelation from our own reasoning and intuition but ultimately none of us have enough revelation to be able to understand who God is and what God's purposes are all about under the sun while the sun lasts in the end we don't know and in the end we die And this wise narrator of this book late in his life has finally come to see that everything he thought to be true and meaningful and have purpose, which mostly was about acquiring and gathering and holding on to power and things and wealth and influence and vanity, all of that is vanity. Chabot. And he came to see that it just goes over and over and over again, an endless cycle. This under the sun cycle never stops. Now this is a particularly Eastern philosophy or theology and that's why there's so many rings, Buddhist rings and other Eastern religious understandings of rings because they see through nature that it is perpetually a circle. But when the Hebrew people came on board with the calling of Abraham, that inevitable circle changed. It became then a lineal history. Not everything always the same. Now there is an historical moment. God calls Abraham forward to... Be a blessing to all my people to leave your father's house and to go forth. At that moment, history was born in the eastern eyes of the Mideast. Everything changed. Now we have not just a circle, we have a line. And in that line of the Hebrews going this way, we also have a line of the Hebrews looking this way because of the God of The mountain, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of all the idols of all the other gods is now just one God, God that is beyond us. And so you look up into the sky and you think, well, that must be where God is. If you don't think the earth revolves, then God must always be that way. Once you learn the earth revolved, then God was that way half the time and that way the other half the time. It was a complete confusion. But now we have a circle, and we have a line, and we have a vertical line, a horizontal line, and we have a vertical line. And now we have why I asked Ada to put the cross in our garden on the front of the bulletin. All three geometric patterns are made clear there, circle, vertical, horizontal, and the Celtic cross. Now, I don't think that's what the Celtic cross is supposed to mean, but that's my meaning for it. As vain as it is, vanity of vanities, I think there's some truth in it. Which brings us to why the Carters sang, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? When in fact, what I think they would have sung to begin with, or whoever wrote it, would, Will the Circle Be Broken? That circle of perpetual pain and suffering and disease and abuse and addiction and, and family ugliness will it and vengeance, will that circle ever be broken? The circle they're talking about, will the circle be unbroken, is that circle of from birth to death. From birth to death, will that circle that is now broken Find its way back to connect so that it will be unbroken in our gathering again together in the by and by, which I think is the promise in the song and the promise in the Bible. You see, the the people who came up with this this form of music, this bluegrass music, uh, grew up in Appalachia. Uh, They toiled in the fields, they faced hardship and death. They knew about circles, they knew about death, they knew about working for the man. In fact, much of country and bluegrass music is aware of this broken circle because it's built on the foundation of the African slaves from the east coasts of Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina and Virginia and the Cajun area of Louisiana and New Orleans, two different genres of blues out of that sprang the blues and out of the blues sprang bluegrass music and out of bluegrass music sprang rock and roll I'm serious about this it's called Elvis out of the blues came Elvis and these and these Appalachian Bluegrass people saw their loved ones wither and die, and all they had to look forward to was the by and by, just like those slaves who had nothing to hope for except to, uh, except to sing, to sing, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And they were sing, singing not just for the chariot to come down from God to, to relieve us and to free us from the slave. There's, they were also swing, singing, for the Underground Railroad Chariot. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry us home. And and that railroad, you see, is the same symbolic, iconic railroad train whistle in almost every country western bluegrass song ever. Right, there's a, I hear that train (laughs) a-comin', Johnny Cash would sing, coming down the line. What's he talking about? What's the train? The train is the way out of this vanity of vanity circle of life, suffering, toil, and death. Now, as I said, this is geometric, circular, horizontal, vertical. There's another line in geometry, and that's what, space? This way, that way, circle, and what do you call that? Spatial? This is, why, this is why today is so important, because we are gathered together, not just vertically and horizontally and circularly, by the way, which the word circus comes from, but we are gathered together, I discovered how important this is, as did the writer of Ecclesiastes, because after he says everything is, everything is vanity of vanities, he comes to the conclusion that he's been talking about himself too much. And if you read the book, there are 67 times that Ecclesiastes uses the word I. It's all about I, 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 I. And only until the end, does he come to understand that it's not about I, it's about us and we. And he said there are two ways now that you can live out of the vanity of life. The first is that you revere God, fear God, reverence, and you keep the commandments. And the second is that you eat and you drink and you share and you dance together for joy's sake. Just for the sake of joy. Those are the two ways we're called to live. And that that always involves community. Never about how I can find happiness. It's always about, it's impossible to find it unless we're together. Embodied in community, in relationship. Here's my own story to it. 2019, before COVID, I've, I'd retired for six months. I'm playing golf three times a week. I'm cleaning out the garage, but I'm not really um, doing some yard work. I'm kind of figuring out what I'm supposed to do with my life. I'm kind of lost, I'm kind of feeling like vanity of my, vanities. And so um, uh, we watched the Ken Burns Country Music Special and, and, and was in, we were introduced to this. A guy named Marty Stewart, who was the wisdom sage that they would interview about the meaning of country western music and bluegrass, we fell in love with him. He's, he was this amazing 14-year-old mandolin player uh, who, who played with Earl Scruggs' band at, 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 in Nashville, and, uh, and he, was, he was amazing. And so. I found out he was coming to Jacksonville, so uh, our daughter Amanda was in town for spring break, so I ordered two tickets and sent Anita and Amanda to go go hear him out out at the beach. And and Amanda knows concerts, that's all. I mean, she's a concert addict. She she even worked for concerts. She even had a little band and played. And she was kind of like, Marty Stewart. I'm like, okay. So they go, and they're on the fourth row, by the way, and they come back. And, and Amanda says, it is the best concert I have ever seen in my life, bar none. Anita's saying the same thing. Marty Stewart and his, and his uh, fabulous superlatives, the name of the band. So uh, Anita says, soon if, if, if he comes close again to Jacksonville, we gotta go. So we're reading that he's going to Birmingham. Well, we have siblings in Birmingham. I have a brother, Anita has a sister and uh, we love Birmingham, Anita was from Birmingham. Let's go back, he was coming in February. So I got some tickets, but we were late to get the tickets and so we're in the Lyric Theater, which is this wonderful old Vaudeville Theater with not many seats and we were in the balcony and Anita's kind of going, oh man, we were in the fourth row, the last one, I wish we could get closer. So I couldn't find any closer tickets, but I did find online this thing called the Big Chief Special. And so the Big Chief Special for like 75, tickets were only $35, but for $75 a piece, you could, you could sign up for the big chief special, and for an hour and a half before the concert, you could meet with Marty and the fabulous superlatives live and in person close. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. So I bought two tickets and gave it to her for Valentine's Day. And, and so we go to go to the concert an hour and a half, having no idea what we were getting into, standing outside the theater when all of a sudden four or five or six of the most ragged people you've ever seen in your life start walking up. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what in the world have we gotten into? And one woman comes up in a wheelchair and gosh, she was sort of a tragic figure. She was really suffering. I could tell she had a hard, hard life. We're all there, and we're all there for the Big Chief Special. And then they let us in, and they take us down to the, to the stage side. And we sat on the first two rows, and Anita and I are sitting on the first row. And Marty and his band come out, and they're in coats because it's cold. It's in February. And they start playing music, all acoustic. Then he stops and says, now I wanna, I wanna spend some time chatting, why don't y'all you introduce yourselves? And he started over on this side, and the woman in the wheelchair was first, and, and she goes, Marty, I'm here, my name's Sarah, and I'm here because you saved my life. He goes, really? So yeah, um, I, have, I have been struggling with uh, alcohol and drug addiction for 20 years. I was on the way out, but I, I started reading about you and discovered that, that you became a Christian and you became sober in a sort of back-to-back way. And so I thought, if it worked for you, it can work for me. And I'm here to tell you I'm now a Christian and I've been sober for over a year. And I just wanted to come to tell you that. Well, tears are coming to everybody's eyes, you know. And and so he goes around and calls on a couple other people. And then he comes to Anita and me, and Anita says her name and looks at me, and and I said, I'm Steve Gorey, but I I need to ask you a question. Did you get sober before you accepted Christ, or did you accept Christ and then get sober? And he stared at me like I'm staring at you, Leslie. But he's on the stage like that. He's like staring at me, right? And he says what do you do? (laughs) And I'm like wide-eyed. And I said, well, I'm I'm a Presbyterian preacher. He stares at me some more. I didn't think preachers could retire. I told him I was a retired Presbyterian preacher. I didn't think preachers could retire still staring at me. Because I don't know which came first, it just came. All right, so I'm now busted. <laughs> Preachers don't retire, right? There's toil still left to do. Two weeks later, on March the 7th, I'm meeting with my prayer group, asking them if they will pray for me because one of the gigs I thought that was going to happen. I was going to work with physicians at one of the big hospitals because of the epidemic of burnout for physicians. Uh, it didn't pan out because the CEO decided to retire before it got put in place, and the new CEO wasn't really excited about it. So uh, I was, I'm like now figuring it out. And so I asked my three friends to pray for me about what I'm going to do with my life on March the 7th. That was at 2 o'clock. On 8 o'clock on March the 7th, the phone rang, and it was Bill Carl, the soon-to-be-retiring pastor at Independent Presbyterian Church, who said, your name's been given to me by Tom Walker, the same guy who gave you my name, by the way. I'm not sure whether to thank him or shoot him. Just teasing. I'm thanking him. And, and he said, uh, i got to tell you, we've called 28 people, or I have, to see if they'd be interested in doing an interim ministry here, but uh, you're the 28th person, and so I just thought I'd call you. Thanks, Bill. I I said, tell me about the church, and he told me all the ugliness of it, all of it. It was in a major transitional issue about politics, and they were about to split. And he told me the history of it and what a great church it was historically. So I hung up, told him, you know, I'll think about it, but I really think you need to call number 29. And, and so I went up and smiled at Anita. I said, how, how would you like to, to move to Birmingham for about a year or so for an interim? And she laughed. Said, what's up? And we sort of laughed about it. And, and then I started unfortunately praying about it and thinking, you know what, this is a good church and you know what, I do have some gifts that might be able to work, could help them. Maybe God is calling me out of my retirement and and that Marty Stewart was a prophet and that I should listen. And I ended up going for 15 months. Then I left, retiring kind of again, and then you called me. <laughs> and the point I am making is, not that it has anything to do with me It has to do with this incredible circle of of relationships and community that bring us together to be for and with each other, this thing called church. This is why we come to the table and share this meal. Eat, drink, and be joyful, Ecclesiastes says. And so let us do so.